Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, please like and subscribe. Don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. You know, with this show, we say six o'clock. Maybe, maybe we mean 6.15. Maybe we mean six o'clock. But generally, we mean six o'clock. Also, before we start, I want to remind people that tickets are going to be going on sale Monday for the book launch event for my upcoming release on Everyday Analysis. I was a teenage anarchist about the culture of authenticity and the culture of deconstruction and how they work in conjunction with each other to neutralize any sort of movement. The live event is what I call the coolest backyard punk party you'll ever have. It will be in a secret location that, you know, once, of course, once you get tickets, you'll get the address in the Bay Area. There's going to be a bunch of people uh, from the metal and hardcore scenes. And I mean, like old school dudes uh, from the early days of those scenes. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the book, read a little bit about the book. We're going to definitely gonna have a fun panel discussion and almost kind of quasi interview with uh, with a lot of these old schoolers and then q a so kind of imagine it as a really cool intimate uh meet and greet if you will uh because there's definitely going to be alcohol there because i know you people like to drink um so i'm excited for it and uh we're putting it all together and monday we're gonna put those tickets on sale for that event so uh can't wait to see you guys there and um, started talking about if we can replicate this event in other parts of the country and world. Also, um, talk to our friends at 99 Zoo Eins about coming to Germany as well with this concept. So if it, if it works well in the Bay Area, we'll, we will be doing it elsewhere. Uh, also today uh, would have been the birthday of author and historian Jeffrey B. Perry. So shout out to Jeff Perry. Jeff appeared on the show a few years back to talk about his very in-depth biography on the great Hubert Harrison. It was a book that Pascal hit me on, and Jeffrey was one of the big guests that Pascal wanted us to, to get, and I'm really stoked that we got to have him on the show. I think we talked to him for, for a couple hours. It was a great conversation. Jeffrey was a great guy. Um, sadly, he wasn't in the best health when we did the show. Um and he did pass away not long after. But that show is up about the history of Hubert, Hubert Harrison. Definitely check that out. Shout out to Jeff Perry on behalf of all of us at TIR. Thank you, Jeff, for your hard work and compassion. And if there is a hereafter, hopefully we can meet up and finish that discussion. And tomorrow, originally we had a like gaming materialist show we wanted to bring back and do like a horror theme thing tucson has been doing a great job booking this month out with some fun horror theme things since it is october we'll definitely be doing a movie night again we'll have a, a fun horror movie night um i can't subject you guys to that much charles bronson um but that didn't work out due to scheduling with the gaming materialist guys which is great because a lot is going on in the world right now and I talked to MT and I was like, you know what? Let's do a call-in show. Um, people are going off on social media, even celebrities that I didn't even think were were, were political. And we're going to open up the phone lines and we want to hear what you guys have to say about whatever it is you guys want to talk about. So tomorrow, 6 p.m. We'll probably be starting on time tomorrow. Um 6 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern. We will be doing a free call-in show. So this is what happens when I gentrify White Guy Wednesday. We have a free call-in show. So get excited for that. And that is tomorrow. So, But today we are here with our special guest. Um, it's been really hard to get this show booked. And I do want to say that this is also one of those moments that I feel like we've arrived 
because whenever you get contacted by like a publicist, <laughs> for me personally, it's like, oh, you think I'm important enough? And they could have just done like a random search, like these who who has revolution in the name? I don't know how we showed up. I'm sure it wasn't like in my mind. I want to believe that this was the discussion. It's a group of publicists in a room, and they're trying to you know pitch the book because the book has to sell, and they're like. How are we going to sell the book? We got we got him on all the big shows, but it, the book is not important unless it's on This Is Revolution. Do you have a contact? We need to reach out to the, the guys at This Is Revolution. Corey's book has to be on here if we want it to sell. In my mind, that's how the conversation happened. I'm sure reality was much different. I'm sure it was just like a Google search. Is there any leftist podcast we can get them on? <laughs> that's probably what happened. But this past weekend, I had to go back up to the Bay Area to handle some stuff. Um, and in my former home of the Bay, you know, it's the birthplace of big tech, Atari, Apple, Facebook, Twitter, or whatever the fuck it's called now. Silicon Valley for some is the land of innovation, but is it really, or is it, uh, more the land of smoke and mirrors? It is through advances in technology that I'm able to broadcast from my home here in Mexico to all of you live around the world. But has the internet truly democratized free speech? and press, or has it changed the perception we have of those freedoms? Through apps like Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, we're able to keep up with family and friends, but what happens when these applications where we upload so many precious memories become the only way we understand communication outside of our immediate families or communities? We've talked about it on this show before, but what happens when owning media, movies, music, art, is bourgeoisie passion, and most of us are happy to be bombarded with ads and uh, forced placement of artists on listening sites like Spotify. Um, some of the biggest economic disrupting services like Uber and WeWork aren't profitable, but we see them not as a taxi service or a real estate holdings company, but tech innovators. Are we all susceptible to what our guest calls in his latest book, the internet con? From the book, notably tech giants today are able to wield the law against interoperators, new technologies that plug into their services, systems, and platforms, that a privilege that none of yesterday easily toppled tech giants had if IBM wanted it to prevent its competitors, like the seven doors of the mainframe area, from making software printers, keyboards, and storage for its mainframes. It had to figure out how to build a computer that no one else could reverse engineer and improve on. For complex reasons, this is impossible. The very bedrock of computer science ideas named for mid-century computing demigods like Turing Completeless and von Neumann machines dictates that the creation of non-interoperable computers is a fool's errand. It's fantasy, not science fiction like a time machine or a faster than light drive. Today's tech giants have not uh, invented an interop-proof computer, they've invented laws that make interoperability illegal unless they give permission for it. A new complex thicket of copyright, patent trade, secret, non-compete, and other IP rights has conjured up a new offense we can think of as a felony contempt of business model, the right of large firms to dictate how their customers, competitors, and even their critics must use their products. This is from his latest book, The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Mass Computation. Author, Corey Doctorow. Oh, goodness. Hold on. Please welcome. <laughs> Sorry about that. No problem. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I, I uh, your music intro uh, about your your gig coming up in Oakland really uh, hit for me. I um, uh, wrote a lot of books during lockdown. I write when I'm anxious, so I came out of lockdown with nine books, and not the next book that I have coming out, which is in November, but the one after that, which is in February, uh, is, is called. Uh, or no, actually, no, the one after that, which is the following February, is called Picks and Shovels, and it's. Uh, a novel about scams during the early era of PCs in the 1980s. 
uh, in San Francisco. And uh, it, a lot of it takes place at Dead Kennedy shows. <laughs> oh, that Interesting. Was pretty, that was pretty funny. Um, my friend Tom Jennings, who published Homo Core, gave me lots of tips for the era. And my friend Zorka, who was Jello's roommate back then. So it's all it's all set against Jello Biafra's mayoral campaign. For those that don't remember or, or aren't old enough to remember Jello on all the talk shows when he was definitely running for mayor, and I'm again I'm from the Bay Area. I remember him on shows like People Are Talking, um, wearing a suit. Wearing a suit. He was he was a very serious person, and he was definitely talking about how the state was out to get him. I think they had raided his house yeah. um, at one point or his apartment. That was because he. Had an H.R. Geiger poster mm -hmm. in one of his albums, and it depicted a kind of tessellated image of stylized sodomy, and he was charged with distributing pornography to minors. So <laughs> it was during Tipper Gore uh, Ooh, PMRC yeah. scare. Anyway, this is all neither here nor there, but it was fun to hear you talking about all that stuff. Also, my publicists, they, their accents sound nothing like that. <laughs> I mean, they are from New York, but but, you know. That's how they're going to sound in my mind, Corey. No one called yeah. me. It was just a series of emails. But I want to believe that that is the conversation that happened. You found that text-to-speech voice uh, <laughs> that was uh, like New York Yenta, Fran, Fran, Drescher, Fran Drescher AI. <laughs> yes, that's that's how all New Yorkers sound to me. Even the black ones, they all sound like that to me. Yeah. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us tonight. Uh, really appreciate you and your work. Um, uh, your work for me kind of coincides with other people that I've read about this. I don't know if you've read uh, Rob Larson. Um, he definitely had some books on this. Um, Weapons of Math Destruction that came out. Kathy O'Neill, very about good. Four very, or five years ago. And someone yeah. I was actually on a show with a few years back, uh, Zuzana Zuboff, I think that's how I say your name. Zuboff. Uh, we have, I wouldn't say we have beef, but we definitely have disagreements, me and Zuboff. You I got, think you, Zuboff did you guys have it out on air? Uh, no, I wrote a book about her book called How to Destroy <laughs> Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, basically about the idea that like everyone who ever claimed to have built a mind control ray turned out to be full of shit, whether that was like Rasputin or MK Ultra or pickup artists or NLP weirdos. Mm -hmm. And the fact that big tech claimed that they built a mind control ray to sell your nephew fidget spinners and then Robert Mercer stole it and made your uncle a QAnon racist, mm -hmm. just like kind of, it's it stretches credulity and like far be it for me to believe that these guys who are like visibly just ordinary mediocrities are in fact evil wizards who are hacking our dopamine loops, uh, especially when there's like much uh, more straightforward explanations like they have a monopoly. Right. And so, like, why do we use Facebook, even though we hate Facebook? Well, maybe it's like the same reason we smoke cigarettes, even though we don't like cigarettes, which is that we're addicted to them. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's just because all of our friends are locked inside of Facebook and we like our friends more than we hate Facebook. And that's just it's just like a, a much simpler explanation. I think a lot of people read Zuboff and think that the part that she hates about surveillance capitalism is just the surveillance is, is the capitalism. Mm -hmm. And she's actually quite loves the capitalism. She just hates the surveillance. Uh, and she like she thinks that the answer to all of this is we just make everything the iTunes store. And if you put a price tag on everything, it'd be fine because everyone knows if you're not paying for the product, you're the product which is obviously untrue because like nobody gives away John Deere tractors and yet farmers have to pay $180 <laughs> to have their own repair on their tractor well, kind of overseen by, by John Deere technician. I do want to get into that. Yeah. So you are jumping ahead. No more caffeine for you, Corey. Uh, I, I got back for, I did a gig in, in Italy uh, day before yesterday and I got back last night. So I have in fact drunk enough coffee to kill a rhino today. Otherwise it'd be <laughs> flat on my back. That is another reason why this was so hard to do because you were flying and all this other stuff. You had to yeah. get it right. But what was the inspiration for, for you running to write this? Was it just the lockdown and what you were seeing during the lockdown? No, you know, I, I've been working on digital human rights for 20 years. So I'm, uh, uh, I'm now a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I was their European director. I was their delegate to various standards bodies, the United Nations, uh, the Westminster Parliament, and, and also the European Parliament. And, and I spent a long time trying to explain how all this stuff works to people 
some of whom I think were acting in good faith and were, you know, fundamentally agreed with in agreement with me about the importance of, of protecting human rights online, and some of whom I think were just um, bamboozling people. And uh, they tended to get quite confused. Uh, and, and particularly as um, tech got bigger and bigger, this kind of uh, fracture appeared in the world of technological criticism and tech activism. And on one side, you have people who are like, the problem with big tech is that it's still run by the wrong people. Uh, that, that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is uh, monumentally unsuited to being the unelected social media czar for life of 4 billion people. But if we either like made him clean up his act or maybe fired him and replaced him with a better Mark Zuckerberg, that we would have a better internet. And and I think that uh, it's it's the other side of this is that like nobody should have that job, that that Mark Zuckerberg shouldn't exist. We should abolish Mark Zuckerberg uh, and that um, as convenient as it might be to say, oh, well, big tech has got all these problems. So big tech could be the solution. Like maybe we can. Um, deputize big tech platforms to identify all the people who do harassment or disinformation or whatever actual like real no fooling real problem there is on their platform maybe we'll deputize them to fix them and uh and because they're so big and they're so well resourced they'll be able to do it whereas if we were to like shatter big tech into lots of uh you know autonomous federated entities where where the people who use them uh, operated them or at least had the choice to go somewhere else because there was a big plurality of platforms uh, that those platforms would be too small to keep the bad stuff from happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the abolish Zuck side of this. I, I want to get rid of uh, these large platforms. I don't think there is like a stable configuration of platforms that support billions of users. Uh, I think that, um, not only are they prone to abusing us, but even when they're not prone to abusing us, the the small errors that we're all prone to become quite large problems when they affect billions of people. Did this get magnified for you during the uh, the shelter in place during 2020? Uh, I guess so. I mean, you know, if I want to be honest, like the biggest uh, crushing moment for me was... Uh, the European Copyright Directive of 2019. Um, and, and this was a, a proposal. Well, it was a big gnarly hairball of proposals as all European cop, uh, directives are. But one part of it was to require uh, internet filters or uh, copyright filters for all internet platforms. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that um, everything that you wanted to say or all the music you wanted to post or sound files or video or images would be run through these filters where... Uh, people could upload things that they claimed belonged to them, that they held the copyright to. And if it matched something in the database, you wouldn't be able to upload it. So something similar to YouTube, uh, YouTube's content ID, but like on steroids. Um, and uh, this was a terrible idea. And a bunch of people who were had real problems um, got tricked into thinking that this would solve those problems, that, that somehow, you know, the problems of artists getting ripped off by their employers or uh, news companies being uh, ripped off by payment processors and big tech. You know, the, the, the two platforms take 30 cents out of every dollar that a uh, news platform collects through an app or being ripped off by ad tech platforms. You know, Facebook and Met and uh, Google rip off 51% of every dollar spent on ads. So if you're ad supported media, more than half of the money that you should be getting is, is disappearing into their pockets. And, and these people just got led down the garden path and we mobilized uh people in 50 cities to do large street demonstrations we had the largest petition in european history um it came down to a key vote um we lost that vote by five votes mm. and afterwards 10 swedish european members of parliament members of the european parliament uh said that they got confused and pressed the wrong button and had their um their votes changed in the official record but the way that european uh, votes work is that even if the vote goes one way in the official record, if in the moment the way the Brutton presses add up mm -hmm. uh, goes the other way, then that's how you go. And I just it just broke me to have come so close. Mm. I think five votes. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Well, and, and that we won ultimately by five votes, but even so, yeah. we lost. You know, it was it's just crazy. I'm I'm actually about to do a remote gig for um, 
a bunch of Swedish policymakers and I was talking to the people running it today uh, about what I was going to say to them. I was like, I am definitely going to call out those MEPs because I think they uh, I think it was bullshit. I think they uh, I think they had a bunch of corporate backers who wanted one thing and they had constituents who wanted something else. And so they gave the corporate backers what they wanted. And then they had the shuck to convince their constituents that, oh, they just like fat fingered the wrong button. I know that sounds conspiratorial, but it it, it stretches credulity to think that these 10 people all just pressed the wrong button in that one vote. Well, uh, I do want to talk to you a little bit about interoperability. Yeah, say, I keep saying it wrong. Interoperability. Let's just call it interop. I mean, it's it's it, it's worse because the thing that I'm specifically into mm-hmm. is uh, adversarial interoperability, which like terrible. Just just you say terrible. it in the book. You're like, like this is a wank, super wonk term. But yeah. uh, what is interoperability, and why is tech what and why is tech doing to control it? Um, what can we do as consumers to enable more interoperability? Inter interoperability. So, yeah, so interoperability like is either really simple or really complicated, depending on how you think about it. It's like, what is is? But um, interop is is fundamentally the ability to make two things work together. So like any light bulb will work in that light socket of yours. You can put any clothes in your dryer, uh, wear anyone's socks with the shoes that you've got on. Um, you can uh, open a Microsoft Word file in Google Docs and then save it and reopen it in iWork or LibreOffice. Um, that's interoperability. And uh, interoperability uh, can be managed through formal standardization. So there are like groups of people who gather in rooms all around the world to argue about what like the screw thread on a light bulb should be so that every light bulb works in every light socket. Uh, it can be done um, after the fact, just um, on a kind of ad hoc basis. So mm-hmm. like every gas station has got a fishbowl full of 50 cent USB adapters for your car lighter receptacle. And like the people who designed that receptacle never intended for that to happen. Uh, the car manufacturer, at least until pretty recently, didn't do anything to facilitate it. But they also didn't do anything to block it. And then there's this other kind of adversary, uh, this other kind of interoperability, this adversarial interoperability. You think of it as like hacking. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, reverse engineering, scraping bots. Um, so it's things like uh, when Apple um, was about to be crushed by Microsoft in the early 2000s because Microsoft wouldn't release a working version of Office for the Mac. So mm-hmm. you would like get files from your Windows using colleagues, but you couldn't open them on your Mac. Or if you could and then you save them mm-hmm. again, they couldn't open them or the fonts would be all wrong or be corrupted. And the way that Steve Jobs fixed that was not by like begging Bill Gates to fix this crummy software. He just had some of Apple's staff reverse engineer the file formats for Microsoft Office. And they released uh, the iWork suite, which is pages, numbers in Keynote, which can read and write um, Microsoft Office files, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. And they just went ahead and did it. And that adversarial interoperability is something that is always latent in anything that's digital, because the only computer we know how to make, and, and this is getting into some computer science stuff here, but the only computer we know how to make is the Turing complete von Neumann machine which is a lot of computer science jargon that just means a computer that can run every program we can write. So all the computers in your life, right? The the singing greeting card, cheap microchip, the thing in your smart thermostat, uh, your phone, your laptop, they can all run all programs. Some of them are more powerful than others. Like it might take you know, some of those computers 10 million years to like boot up Photoshop, but give them enough time and enough storage and they can do it. And and what that means is that you can always design modifications after the fact for computers that allow you to do things that the manufacturer didn't want, right? To run third-party ink or install apps of your choice on your iPhone or, um, you know, read your Word files with a program that Microsoft didn't make uh, or leave Facebook or Twitter land somewhere else like Mastodon and still access the people and the messages and the communities and the customers that matter to you on those old services. And and there's nothing that a tech company can do to prevent you from doing that technically. There will always be ways around whatever technical barriers they insert. But as you heard in that, in that excerpt you read, um, as the tech sector became more concentrated, as it turned into what Tom Eastman calls five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four, Mm -hmm. we got to this point where um, it's basically illegal to do this stuff. Like Apple, when they did it, that was progress. But when you do it to them, that's theft. 
and they will nuke you until you glow. They'll bomb you until the rubble bounces. They'll say you violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, tortious interference with contract, patent, copyright, trademark. Um, and, and you know, there'd be nothing left of you by the time there, by the time you were done. And, and so this is the juncture we've arrived at now where tech platforms have made it very hard for you to leave once you're on them. They lock up your media, they lock up your friends, they lock up your files. Uh, and because they know you can't leave, they can abuse you without losing your business. And so they do not because they're saddest, but because it's a way of shifting some of the value from from themselves, from you to themselves. Um, it's funny you talk about, you know, these tech companies that keep you on the platform. I, you know, was an early user of Facebook and definitely uploaded numerous photos to the site um, with phones and cameras that I no longer am in possession of as these things also become outdated and, and unusable. Um, and then I was banned from Facebook. They mm -hmm. deleted my account. That's, that's actually how I was on a show with Zuboff. We were on an NPR show about that. It was when um, Facebook did the big uh, uh, ex exit, mass exit of a bunch of leftist organizations. Yeah. Um, I think there was like 30,000 people that got caught up in that. And I somehow got caught up in that for something I wrote using a dead Kennedy's title, uh, kill the poor about, <laughs> about, um, about a, a woman, the, the woman that Trump had put uh, to death, uh, the mentally, the mentally ill woman Trump had put to death. Yeah. Um, and it didn't really hit me at first. It was more of an inconvenience. But then when I was like, Oh man, all these pictures of my kids, all these videos of, of me and the kids hanging out and teaching them how to skateboard and all this other stuff. It's gone. Yeah. It's, it's disappeared. And that is kind of a reality of where we are right now. Um, I do kind of want to skip ahead to another question I had to you about, you know, owning media. You know, we talked about music, which is, which is something that I still kind of do not to the level that I did it before. Right. Um, but we don't really own these things anymore. Movies, music, for some people, art, um, photos. Like we think we own these photos. We think they're there forever. You know, I am living proof <laughs> that they are not there forever. Um, I, I long for the days of going to a friend's house and going through, you know, photo albums, which is, you know, such a thing from the past. Um, what do we do about that? <laughs> about this new moment that we're in right now? Because I think that's another thing that kind of keeps us tethered uh, to these sites is that we put so much of ourselves on these sites. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to note that, like, that is not intrinsic to the technology. Like, uh, realistically speaking, there's no reason that you shouldn't have been able to download all that data. And in fact, if you had been in Europe when Facebook kicked you off, you would have had a claim under the GDPR that they would have had to give you back your data. There are like policy answers to this. And one of the things about um, a rule that says you have to give someone their data, even if you kick them off of your service, is that uh, unlike other rules, like you have to stop people from being harassed, which mm -hmm. requires that you first like... Uh, decide what harassment is mm -hmm. and then decide whether something that happened to someone is harassment and then determine whether the company did everything they could have to stop the harassment instead like did you give me my data is a really interesting is a really simple question to resolve right you don't need a tribunal it's just like does does jason have his data and facebook <laughs> says oh no we gave it to him and you say no they didn't mm -hmm. and the court can go okay just get just give him another copy like we're done yeah. Right. So it it's it's uh, to use another wonky term, it's administratable. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't doesn't require that you build like a parallel system of corporate arbitration to figure out whether the rule is being enforced. Like you can just you can just enforce it really easily. So in some ways, there's some pretty easy answers to this. Um, and so the fact that these answers are so easy points to a lack of political will, not to a lack of technical capacity especially given that there are other territories where such laws have come into being. And, you know, to a pretty, uh, uh, pretty, pretty great extent here in California, you would have those rights as well under CCPA. Um, you know, one of the 
things that I think we need to understand is that tech is not run by fundamentally worse people than it was in the old days when it, you know, the internet was like <laughs> objectively better to hang out on. Mm -hmm. It's that the same people have fewer checks on their worst impulses. Mm -hmm. Like if you, you speaking about, about music, if you remember the Napster Wars, right, mm -hmm. you had uh, the tech sector, which was um, much larger than the entertainment sector back then. Uh, but it was composed mostly of small and medium sized companies, right? That the companies that the entertainment sector was going after, there were like 100, 150 of them. They were all squabbling. They were all competing. They were all trying to figure out who could give their uh, end users and musicians the best deal. Uh, they couldn't even agree on like where to have lunch, much less like <laughs> what they were going to tell Congress. Whereas the media companies, there were like seven of them. And now there's like five. Mm -hmm. And even though they were a tenth the size, they had enormous message discipline. And they always went into Congress. They went into Parliament. And they went into the um, uh, the EU with the exact same message every time and as a result they they kicked tech's ass and today tech is like even more concentrated than the entertainment sector was right like they they are so inbred they've got a Habsburg jaw and <laughs> they get exactly what they want and you can tell because it's like 25 years into the internet and mm. we still don't have a federal privacy law in the United States they're really good at getting their legislative priorities. Like there's a there's a right wing story about regulatory capture, which is that basically like um, governments are really powerful. So dominant companies will try to capture them and they inevitably will. And therefore, we shouldn't have governments. Right. We just shouldn't have regulators like we should just let companies do what they want, because the worst company is better than that company in concert with the government. It's this super nihilistic idea that like the market will solve this and you know your friend will die of cholera after eating at the restaurant where no one washes their hands and you'll learn better and you won't eat there anymore yeah. and eventually all the non-cholera restaurants will be the best restaurants in town and everyone will know and if you want to eat at the cholera restaurant well that's up to you you know it's this kind of nonsense thing whereas i think a a kind of well-informed uh, evidence supported and and fundamentally leftist idea of regulatory capture is that uh, firms that are concentrated and large have a much easier time of capturing their regulators than sectors that are big and diverse uh, and full of squabbling entities, right? Like I want competition in tech, not because, you know, I think competition solves all of our problems. I want competition in tech for the same reason that bosses want to, you know, bring in scabs when you go on strike because they want you disunified. They want workers to see themselves as not uh, being on the same side as other workers, but to be distinct bodies who have separate interests and shouldn't work in solidarity. I want bosses to feel that way. I want companies to feel like they they can't trust each other, uh, that any t at any moment one of them is going to stab the other one in the back and look for some special deal in Congress or Parliament, and for them to be unable to speak with that one voice. So, you know, on the media side, like one of the forms of regulatory capture that we're living through now is a general prohibition on breaking what's called digital rights management, DRM, which is a kind of encryption that's used to lock media to uh, one uh, ecosystem or app or, or, or program, like every audiobook sold on Amazon's Audible platform, which is the monopoly platform for audiobooks. They have 90% market share. Every audiobook by uh, Amazon's rules comes wrapped up in an Amazon encryption wrapper, Amazon Digital Rights Management. And that file will only ever play on uh, a player that Amazon has blessed and given its keys to so that, um, you know, so that, that uh, they honor all the rules that Amazon set. Uh, particular, in particular, they won't let you import audiobooks from rival services. So you have to decide, do you want to keep your Amazon library or do you want to go somewhere else that's more, you know, fair to artists or fair to fans? Uh, and, and you can't bring your media from one to the other. It's like if every time you bought a, a CD at like um, Sam Goody, you had to buy the CD player from them and it only played Sam Goody CDs. And you could only play them through Sam Goody speakers and you can, could only listen to them in a Sam Goody chair under a Sam Goody light bulb. You know, at, at, at first, like that's a proposition no one would take up. But once you've got a big Sam Goody collection, you'd be nuts to go and buy music. Well, well then at, Apple at did it, right? Then, then Apple did it with their. This is what their Apple whole, did, you know, yeah, with, I, with iTunes. Buying everything, Beats and yeah.
Yeah. And so the, the, the crazy thing here is that this is a copyright law that prevents you from, from bypassing digital rights management. It's section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It's a moldy oldie. It goes back to the Clinton era. And um, under this copyright law, this is going to sound very weird, but under this copyright law, if I write a book and then I record the audiobook and I pay an engineer to master it and I sell it on Audible to you, mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to give you a tool so that you can move it from Audible's platform to a rival platform. And if I do provide you with that tool, I, the person who wrote the book, recorded the book, paid for the book, I commit a copyright infringement that uh, is punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. It's significantly harsher than if you were to merely steal the audiobook, like orders of magnitude harsher than if you were to steal the audiobook. So this is a copyright law, but it doesn't protect the proprietors of copyrights. It doesn't protect the people who make the works, the people who invest in the works. It protects the intermediary who wraps the work in encryption. And this is what has led to this lock-in. You know, we hear a lot about form, format obsolescence, right? Like our, our, someday you won't be able to play these files. We all know that they're like old image files from the Apollo program that they can't find players for. But really what they can't find are like hardware players that can play these giant platters that they store the data on. If they had taken that data and moved it on to whatever the successor medium was, tape, and then moved it from that into you know, hard drive and from there into like modern hard drives or whatever, those files aren't hard to open. Like digital files are really easy to open. In fact, those file formats are so primitive, you could write a emulator for the computer that ran on them and run it on your smartwatch. Like it's e piss easy. Like mm -hmm. hypothetically, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to run all the music that you've ever acquired and digitized on all the computers that you will ever own and all the computers your kids and grandkids will ever own. It's it's only these legal restrictions on making interoperable players that prevent you from doing it. And it's those legal restrictions that allow the firms to do bad things to you. So Audible is like sticking ads in audiobooks now and bad things to the creative workers who supply the work. Audible was implicated in a $100 million wage theft scandal called Audiblegate, where they used funny accounting to steal from independent audiobook creators. Jesus. I didn't know that. Yeah, this is all in like one nonfiction book back. Uh, the uh, let me see, do I have a copy around uh, Choke Point Capitalism, which I wrote with my colleague uh, Rebecca Giblin. I don't, I don't have a copy around. I don't think I. They, there's so many. I seriously wrote nine books during lockdown. It's too much. Well, you you talk about in your book, you talk about um, Napster, and we talked about it just briefly, like the early days of Napster, and you talk about it as a very friendly environment. And the way you talk about Napster, for me as someone that created music, was a way I felt about the early days of SoundCloud, actually. Mm -hmm, um, it sure. was kind of this really cool community where you could put demoed material up and people would critique it. And I don't know what it was about that community. It really wasn't about being rude about what you did, but be really helpful. And even met a lot of musicians that, you know, remix stuff for us. I got a record deal off SoundCloud. Right. Um, it wasn't much more, but still. Um, yeah. I it, once sold a, I once sold a, a article reprint because someone ganked some text I'd written from the internet and used it as word salad in some spam. <laughs> and an editor got it at the bottom of his spam was like, this is very interesting. And he Googled it and found uh -huh. me and bought a reprint. So, you know, yeah, there, there was, there was, there was something about these communities where they were actual communities where people were sharing. Like you, you talk about in, in the book that um, you grew up in Canada and you were a fan of certain kind of music and you wanted to find yeah. it. And Napster, you would just search to see who had the music that you were looking for and, you went through their whole library of music and found you guys had a lot in common, had these great conversations. So before we get to the tough question, what did you grow up listening to? Because you're from the uh -huh. East Coast of Canada, right? Well, in particular, that was a band called the Phantoms, who were uh, like um, uh, blues band, uh, like kind of hard charging uh, rock and blues band, mm -hmm. a little bit of jump, jump blues as well. They're... Um, there's a, there was a he's dead now. There was a great Canadian blues musician called uh, Jeff Healy, who used to have an open yeah. mic. Yeah, you remember him? Mm -hmm. And he used to have an open mic at a at a legendary place in Toronto called Grossman's. 
and you would go and see all the people who show up and then the ones who were good you go you go to their gigs mm. uh and the front man for the phantoms was this just like unbelievably good harp player like like just incredible blues harmonica player mm. and i used to go see them they played a lot of venues that were uh pretty um uh casual Divey. about checking id okay yeah. <laughs> so i got to go see them a lot before i was of age and then when i was of age as well and so uh yeah when, when like they they imploded the way i guess bands do but i was able to go and and um find people who collected their music and they were just this hyper local like this band that was really beloved by a group of probably a couple thousand people in my hometown uh and they would play every weekend hard working band and uh you know like anyone who had their music on napster was like someone who probably knew a bunch of people i knew and went to a bunch of shows that i'd gone to and liked the same you know shitty beer restaurants that i liked and and just like there was and i was on the road right i was on the road then so like i'd be in a lonely hotel room with jet lag and i'd find some uh some rando on the internet and they'd just be someone who like was was a hometown guy you know now those i guess you could say social media kind of keeps that alive to some extent but you say in that same chapter you go the only way you could obtain this music was to go to the show and buy it that's right yeah um, which for me i still really covet owning things since we don't own anything i hate yeah. renting um i do want to get into as we i don't have you for that much longer i do want to get into the rent economy that that tech mm -hmm. is making us a part of mm -hmm. um owning music was was something that i think and i kind of hinted at this in the, in the introduction it's only for a certain kind of person that can afford to do it right and do it right mm -hmm. they're going to own vinyl they're going to have the right vinyl player you know god forbid they have a crosley record player in their house um uh, <laughs> i got one of those little uh briefcase ones with yogi bear on top <laughs> I don't have anything, dude. I, I suffer from, I never got a record player because I was like, records are too expensive. I remember as a young person, I'm 46. I remember as a young person, my, my parents had records. And um, I loved when my parents took me to other people's houses because I loved seeing their record collection on the floor to see if they had something my parents didn't have. And I would always want to hear it. Just I loved album art. I still love album art. Um, I love liner notes. I love it all. But you know, even pressing a record is is uh, there's only a, a handful of places that actually press sure. vinyl. Um, the last vinyl that I produced in 2014, we had to wait. I forget how many months we had to wait um, because Jack White wanted to do a big pressing. And recently, um, a bunch of people had all their music on hold because uh, Adele. Yeah, was real fired that. up about um, pressing up vinyl. And usually when you press vinyl, um, to give you guys an idea of what the cost is, for CDs, it was less than a dollar a CD. And that would be like in a, uh, a sleeve shrink wrapped. And that's for you, you're, you, the artist itself doing it. You're, you're, we're not going to get into record label costs. That's a whole different show. Um, and with vinyl wrapped, no, not shrink wrapped because I have I found a box. Uh, not shrink wrapped. I think it's about seven bucks per record. That's nothing fancy. Wow. That's no colored vinyl. That's no inside liner notes on the paper sleeve. That's a blank paper sleeve, and just a regular. Not even not paper. even a home taping is killing music uh, logo on there. Yeah. <laughs> I remember. That I remember home yeah. taping is killing you, right? I, I just bought my first vinyl and I couldn't tell you how long, but I bought the I bought the stop making sense reissue. Ooh. And I, I got to go to the opening at TIFF uh with talking heads in the audience and go to the after party and meet them, which was just best day Are of my you life. In LA? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Oh, okay. You're you're, you're but, three and a half hours from me in Rockstar Town. We gotta go hang out at the rainbow. Uh, okay i'm an old guy now you say you're old i've got two artificial hips and cataracts so i'm not i may not be up for the same kind of shows that i used to be i can't see anything in the dark 
anymore. I just fall. Then we're perfect. We're the perfect audience then for yeah. people at the rainbow. Yeah. Anyway, so you wanted to you wanted to ask about rent. So yeah. rent's a really interesting subject. Uh, so Yanis uh, Varoufakis has a new book out called Techno Feudalism: mm-hmm. What Killed the Internet, mm-hmm. uh, or What Killed Capitalism, rather. And and he says, you know, like since the Communist Manifesto, leftists have been saying, oh, capitalism is going to uh, eventually, you know, collapse under its own contradictions and be succeeded by something else. And Varoufakis argues that it was, but what it was succeeded by was feudalism mm-hmm. uh, and, and that, you know, capitalism was just a, a, a transitional stage between feudalism and feudalism. And and feudalism gets thrown around a lot. It's like uh, fascism or something where it's like everyone you disagree with is a fascist. Everyone who's old fashioned is a caveman and everyone who's like snobby is a feudalist. But there's like a, a formal definition of feudalism that distinguishes it from capitalism and capitalists and feudalists hated each other and like fought Mm -hmm. wars. Mm -hmm. Uh, A capitalist is someone who wants to own some capital like a factory and then send workers to work in that capital uh, on that capital and alienate the surplus value created by their labor, right? And get, get rich off their workers wages. Uh, A feudalist wants to own something that other people need to produce. So uh, in the ideal feudal arrangement, you have a bunch of peasants who are bound to the land through hereditary arrangements. They can't leave. They own the means of production, right? They own the plow, they own the livestock, they own the seed, they own the threshing mm-hmm. machines, whatever. But they own you. They owe you tax every year just for owning the land. And capitalists hated this arrangement. Um, they wanted to kick the, the peasants off the land and proletarianize them so they would go work in the factories. And they wanted the land turned over to like grazing sheep, which would then generate the wool that was the input for the Industrial Revolution. And um, the feudalists didn't like this. The feudalists really wanted to just have this thing where they just they're just very genteel. They used to say that like banking is the is the three, three, six job. Uh, it's uh, or three, six, three uh, lend it, lend it. Um, what was it? Lend it, uh, borrow at 3%, lend at 6%, be on the golf course by three o'clock every day. Uh, you, you know, like a, a job that, that you know, the the worst fail son of the, of, you know, the, the dumbest rich guy could do in his sleep. And it would just kind of chug along, right? They didn't want it. They didn't really want to do capitalism. They just wanted to have a thing where like, it just, just a passive income, a thing that produced money. And um, the income that you get from owning something is called rent and the income that you get from mobilizing capital is called profit. And the way to tell whether you live in a capitalist society or a feudal society is not whether no one is getting rents or no one is getting profits, but rather when rents and profits come into conflict, who wins? If, um, rents win, then you live in a feudal society and if profits when you live in a capitalist one. And Varoufakis says like, look, Amazon looks like a capitalist enterprise. It's full of capitalists, right? It's full of people who mobilize capital to make goods and services that are then sold on Amazon, all these independent merchants, something like 70% of all the goods sold on Amazon come from these independent merchants. But uh, while Amazon may feel like you've walked into like a bustling, you know, city marketplace full of traders selling their goods, all of those uh, uh, stalls in the market, they're all owned by one guy. They're owned by Jeff Bezos. And he decides what can be bought and what can be sold place, mm-hmm. who can sell in the market. And he takes um, 51% out of every dollar that everyone who sells in the market makes. And he gets that just for owning the marketplace. Um, and where capitalists want to do capitalist things like, for example, discount if you buy direct from them, Jeff Bezos actually kicks them off the store if they do that. So um, they have to let him set their prices, right? That This is why um, one of the reasons everything is so expensive is that uh, every merchant has to sell on Amazon to be viable. They have to give Amazon 51 cents out of every dollar they make. That exceeds their margins by huge, huge amounts. And so they raise their prices on Amazon, but they're not allowed to sell more cheaply anywhere else. So they raise their prices at Target and Walmart and a mom and pop shop and their own website as well. Otherwise, Amazon kicks them off and they go out of business. And so uh, this kind of rent economy, it's not just about music, right? It's about everything is now in this rental arrangement. 
you know, there was just this thing with Unity, which is the, you know, most popular game engine. And, and Unity became the most popular game engine the way all the other most popular services on the internet got big. They bought all their competition. You know, Google made a search engine 25 years ago and never made another successful product, but bought video, mobile, ad tech, server management, calendars, documents, and so on from other people. They're, they're not Willy Wonka's idea factory. They're just like rich uncle penny bags and they go and they buy everyone else's ideas. Uh, and so, you know, Unity is the biggest service on the internet. Game developers spend millions of dollars developing games on Unity's platform and then selling them or giving them away to people. And Unity announced, oh, we've got a new arrangement where every time someone downloads a copy of a game you made with our tool, we're gonna get some money for it. And in most cases, or many cases, it was going to exceed the amount of money that the game developers got. And game developers staged a revolt. And it was a rare example of, of success from public outcry, because oftentimes companies take the Lily Tomlin approach. You know, we don't have to care. We're the phone company. But in this case, they actually caved. And, and the CEO, who, who just resigned in disgrace, uh, when he caved, he went on a podcast and he said, look, it's clear that the amount of money we were asking for as a share of the revenue you generated with the products you made with our tools was too high, but we need to find a sustainable amount that's fair to everyone. And this is like saying like, oh, you know, we just need to find a sustainable arrangement whereby the guy who makes the guitar strings gets a royalty every time you sell a record. And the guy who made paintbrush gets a royalty every time you sell the painting. And the guy who made the hammer gets a royalty every time you renovate a house. And it's just rent, right? That is what they want to do. They want to, they want to own an asset and they want to have it so that everyone who wants to make something has to use that asset. And then they charge rent on that asset. And you can see here this, this conflict between capitalism, which is what is moving most of these game developers, where they are acquiring capital, hiring workers, you know, re relieving them of the surplus value created by their labor working on the game and getting rich doing it. And feudalists are the Unity owners who made some capital a long time ago, bought some capital, acquired some capital, bundled it up, created a choke point, and now want to extract rent from capitalists. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I think Verifacus is right. I think we are living in a, a feudal moment, although there's maybe some people uh, out there who are like historians who are like, that's not feudalism. In feudalism, you also have to raise an army for a king. You're talking about manorialism. And so technically it is manorialism. If you're mm -hmm. pedantic, you can go, oh, I think you mean manorialism. But for most people, it's feudalism. And this isn't just music and, and movies. This is also things like automobiles, um, where- Yeah, $12 MC heaters, um, yeah. thermostats, uh, university textbooks now you have to get a download code because they leave all the important stuff out uh, mm -hmm. and then the download expires at the end of the year and you can't sell the university textbook it's not worth anything the university mm -hmm. textbook is basically a giant unwieldy way to distribute a download code uh, you know it, it, it goes on and on everything is rent now um, even money is rent so like if you want to pay your actual literal rent to your landlord in most cases, they charge you a fee for paying your rent. There's like a convenience fee for, fee for paying with a credit card. And there's a check fee for paying with a check. And there's a cash fee for paying with cash. And like, it's, you know, they're not even pretending anymore. I know mask off is kind of hacky and cliche and cringe and all, but it's pretty goddamn mask off when there's a cash fee. Which is, which is insane to, to think about, like, yeah. Um, and you, I've, I've heard you talk about the tractors and you talked about it a little bit. Can you talk a, a little bit about like these John Deere tractors that say like, if you, if you have a problem in the field, you're, you're using your tractor, let's just say you're not a, a mega large farm. You're a small farmer. You have a John Deere tractor. Um, it breaks down. That happens. Something gets caught in it. You can't even just fix it. Um, you have to pay a fee to have right. a certain service for the tractor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, you can actually fix it. In fact, you're usually expected to, to fix it. You swap the part, right? You do the diagnostics, you swap the part. It just doesn't start working again until you pay a John Deere technician to come out and type an unlock code. And that same law I was talking about that stops you from moving your Audible books, the Section 12.1 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, also criminalizes bypassing that download code. 
Uh, mm -hmm. And it also criminalizes bypassing the download code that lets you get your seat heater in your car working or any of those other features that are these pay-per-use rent extraction features. Um, and you know, this was this was used not just to extract rent from from farmers, but this lockdown uh, gives John Deere a whole bunch of edges over their farmers. So farmers who complain about this, excuse me, farmers who complain about this were told by their service centers, by the local service depot, that they were no longer uh, welcome to use their service technicians, which, you know, fine, right? If you're an obnoxious customer and the, the business can sling your ass to the curb and decide not to, to serve you anymore, but you can't fix your own tractor and no one else can fix a John Deere tractor. So they basically brick your tractor for criticizing the company, which is quite a powerful motivator to stay on the right side of them. Um, there are other ways in which John Deere extracts value uh, by by having these locks. So the fact that you're not allowed to um, circumvent the locks and go into the tractor, modify the firmware, extract the data and so on, means that John Deere can take the data that you generate driving your tractor around your field because the tractor's torque sensors and humidity sensors generate centimeter accurate grid surveys of soil condition. And they can extract that and sell that into the futures market where they're making bets on on um, food production in the future based on this proprietary trading information, and they can just extract it from you. Um, they now allow farmers to download some of that data from a portal, but it used to be that you could only get that data as part of a precision agriculture package that you bought from Monsanto. So you would get the seed and the data, which you generated in your own tractor, driving it around with your own two hands around your own field, you would get that you could only get that data for the precision ag uh, from from uh, if you bought the seed from from Bayer Monsanto at the same time. I mean, it's pretty mustache twirly villain stuff, right? But um, it, it's the kind of trajectory of everything digital in the absence of something that we do to fix it. And and I should mention that this book, uh, along with my other recent nonfiction books, it's only partly about documenting what's wrong. The real point of this book is to explain. Uh, how to fix it, right? What policy remedies we can have? And earlier you asked me what consumers can do about this and consumers can't do anything, right? It, it, you know, consumers fix things by voting with your wallet and, and voting with your wallet is like participating in a one party election where anyone you vote for turns out to work for the capitalism party and the people with the thickest wallets get the most votes. Uh, the way that you can do something about this is as a citizen, uh, as a member of a polity, um, and I, I like to quote here when I think about theories of change from uh, my arch enemy, uh, guy Milton Friedman, who is the uh, the guy who designed neoliberalism, was kind of court sorcerer to Ronald Reagan. And and um, he had this idea, you know, people would say to him, Milton, like, you want to abolish all the prosperity of the post-war era and turn us all into like forelock tugging peasants again. Nobody wants to live in the Gilded Age except for rich people, and they're a minority. They're the 1%. So 99% of us don't don't like that idea. How are you going to convince people to give up all the things that they got from, from the post-war uh, social uh, net? And he said, in times of crisis, ideas that are lying around can move from the periphery to the center. So our job is to keep good ideas around so that when the next crisis comes, they can go from being impossible to inevitable. And I like to quote Milton Friedman here because, you know, Satan took him to hell in 2002. And I imagine <laughs> that when I quote him, he looks up from that spit he's roasting on and just like gargles a curse at the thought of his words in my mouth, you know, around that red hot iron bar that's protruding from his jaws and that the demons around him laugh and, you know, throw more molten shit at him. And, and you know, one thing we can say about Milton Friedman is he was right. Like, his ideas move from the periphery to the center in the moment of crisis. And if there's one thing that this tech, you know, top heavy tech landscape of, of giants who bought their way to dominance and then capture their regulators has given us, it's a, an absolute surplus of crises. We are lurching from crisis to crisis. And because all we have are dumb ideas lying around, Every time we have a crisis, we do the same thing we did last time, but harder and hope for a better outcome. And so the point of this book is to like really articulate shovel ready policies, not ways that we can shop our way out of monopoly capitalism or install our software such that we, you know, we, we can escape 
from the bad guys. I mean, there's room for all of that, right? Yes, support the artists you love by buying their work, um, you know, uh, support free and open source software, get a Mastodon account, all of that stuff is fine, but it's all tinkering in the margins. The way that we fix this is by supporting Lena Khan and Jonathan Cantor at the FTC and the DOJ as they drag Google and Amazon through uh, antitrust hell. It's to um, look for specific policies around interoperability, reverse engineering, privacy and labor law, and, and to think about what those policies should, should be shaped like. What does an administratable policy for interop look like? And that's what the second half of the book is really about. It's about describing what those policies should be so that when the next crisis comes and, and your friends say, oh, you know, I, 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 I don't know what to do. I hope that Congress like slaps Mark Zuckerberg around. You can say, look, here's what they should really do to Mark Zuckerberg. Here's what he fears. It's not being dragged up in front of the Senate and, you know, faintly embarrassed. It's like these specific policies. And that's that's what we should be demanding. Well, Corey, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Um, thank you. You want to tell people where they can find you? Yeah, I, I'm at pluralistic.net, um, which is a newsletter and blog, RSS feed. It comes out on Tumblr, Mastodon, Medium, and uh, um, also on Discourse. Uh, it's licensed CC attribution, so you can reproduce it commercially if you want to. Uh, and my next book, which I do have a copy of uh, after after InternetCon, is, is The Lost Cause. It's a solar punk novel about... Uh, uh, people who are trying to save the planet doing battle with uh, a narco-capitalist seagoing wreckers and their white nationalist militia shock troops. Oh, uh, and uh, it's coming out from, from Macmillan in a couple of weeks, November the 14th. But, um, you know, as you heard me uh, whining about Audible, uh, none of my books are for sale on Audible as audiobooks. Instead, I independently um, reproduce those audiobooks or produce those audiobooks myself uh, and then I pre-sell them on Kickstarter and then sell them everywhere except Audible and Apple Books. So if you go to lost-cause.org, uh, that's lost-cause.org, you can pre-order the audiobook, the ebook, hardcovers. Um, the, I've done this now several times. It's worked out really well. And I've heard from other authors that it's it's making them rethink whether they want to continue to be stuck to Audible and, and trapped in Audible's silo. Well, again, thank you, Corey. The book is called The Internet Con. It is out now. Check it out. It's a, it's, you know, it's a good book. It's an easy read. It's a national bestseller as of today. It hit the USA Today list. So oh, there fuck you go. Yeah. So uh, I refuse to believe. Tucson, can you make bring me on the, on the screen, Tucson? Our producers here, Tucson. I'm having massive issues with my mouse at the moment that is not allowing me to do anything. See what happens with big tech people. Big tech destroys everything. Um, I guess Tucson. Have you tried turning it off and on again? I've done so much while you were talking. You have no idea. <laughs> Can you say something entertaining? And I'm going to go get a mouse from a different room. I mean, I could recite Jabberwocky or something. <laughs> uh, sure. I can. I can vamp. Let me see. Um, uh, what did one snowman say to the other snowman? Do you smell carrots? That's 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 a that's a terrible one. Uh, let me take you through some of the other books. Um, I didn't know I would have to vamp. So the bezel is the next Martin Hench book. It's out in in February. Uh, it is the sequel to my book Red Team Blues, which I also have a copy of here, uh, which is about a forensic accountant who busts Silicon Valley finance scams. And in the bezel, he's uh, he's fighting with uh, private prison tech. Uh, it's a novel about the uh, the mid 2000s. Um, boy, I really wasn't expecting to vamp here. I uh, I have horrible jet lag. Uh, <laughs> well, it, you know, it looks like it's not the mouse. It is the computer yeah. itself. So I'm, I'm the, I I just got a copy of this. I've been reading it. It's quite good. I recommend it. Um, Well, it looks like we're all having issues. We're all having fucking issues. Even my producer can't get in. It's restreaming no. in itself. Well, thank you, Corey. You know, you could just take yourself off the screen. Thank you so okay. much. <laughs> Good luck with it. Bye, yeah. guys. Good night. <laughs>
All right. Thank you. Um, hey, I'm back here. Apparently, Restream isn't letting me do anything. Um, this is a Restream problem. So someone says hackers got me. That's fucking hilarious. I cannot do anything to even end the show. So I'm going to send a message to, I can't even send a message to Restream to tell them to go F themselves. <laughs> so it looks like we're going to break a record for the longest stream ever because I can't, I, can't, I literally can't end it. And I kind of don't want to have this going on while I live my life since I live such a horrible life. I can't have you guys listening to it. And it's funny because people from the show are trying to get in and they can't, like no one can get in. So I'm going to try to end it. Nope. I can't end the stream. Well, fuck it. I'll, I'll ask Toussaint or Quinn, if you guys are around, can you 